0: make it is brought to you by ting the new way everyone is getting their cell service no overage penalties great rates keep what you do not use no contracts and someone will actually pick up the phone when you need support use our link and get 25 dollars off your first month service or your new phone just go to tech-zen.tv slash ting to save 25 dollars Hello, it is 9 p.m. Eastern Time on Monday, and it is time for another Let's Make It. This is episode 35, recorded on September 9th, 2013. And this week, I have a special guest. Uh, I have John Hall. How you doing, John? Hey, Mike. So, John is from uh, NXP Semiconductors, and he's come tonight to sh- to talk about I2C with us. Uh, but before we, we get to that... Um, just do a couple of little things here first. So um, I got an email this week because H- Halloween's coming up. And actually, I don't dress up for Halloween. I don't go out and do anything for Halloween. Do you enjoy Halloween, John? No, not at all. Okay. Well, we had a request about doing some episodes on, like, how to make, I guess, like, things move for Halloween, like make a ghost pop up or things like that. So we're going to start thinking about this out, uh, a little bit. Uh, maybe as far as like having Arduino control spooky sounds or some kind of lights or something like that. So if you have ideas, send us the idea and we'll uh, maybe try to put that into a show before Halloween. So maybe you can scare your neighbors or your neighbor's kids a little bit. Um, just uh, real quick, you can watch us on YouTube at youtube.com slash techzenTV. And uh, you can also get uh, all of our show notes at uh, Tech Zen TV. Or You can go to let's make it that TV and it's a shortcut right into the right page in Texen. And if you follow us on Twitter uh, Make sure you use the hashtag. Let's make it if you tweet about anything on the show We do watch that hashtag and uh, we'll respond um, If we see that All right, uh, one last thing one more marketing thing facebook.com slash TV uh, Please go out there and uh, do the like uh, we're trying to get our likes increased a little bit out there all right, so this week we have John, and he is an I2C expert. And uh, we've been using a lot of I2C, uh, and actually, uh, I've been mentioning that the switcher I've been building, I'm actually using it this week to do the switching. So it's here in front of me, and I'm using a, everything as I2C. Every eight-button board is I2C. It's actually one of uh, the chips that John's company sells that controls the LEDs. Uh, I remember the 9635, is that the model number? That's right. So I'm actually controlling the red green on the switcher and the different colors uh, all using that chip. And then the 23017 for what buttons I'm being pressed. So this whole thing is I2C and I have uh, five different boards right now mounted on here that are all controlled via I2C. So this is a a very timely topic for me and uh, I have some questions for John. I kind of gave him a little bit of a a heads up already for that one. So
1: um, John, are you ready to take over and Absolutely. First of first of all, I'd like to I'd like to uh, say thank you very much for using I2C. That um, that's uh, keeps me uh, keeps me employed. So <laughs> let me let me uh, switch over and share my share my screen. And we'll get started on a presentation that I've done for let's make it for this week on i2c. Okay. Um, This is the title page. Uh, Can you see that, Mike? Yep, I sure do. Okay, very good. So my name is John Hull. I'm Technical Marketing Manager for I2C Products at NXP Semiconductor. Um, We uh, are going to talk about I2C, which stands for uh, Inter-Integrated Circuit Bus. Now, one of the things that you may not know is that it was invented by Philips Semiconductor, which is now NXP, um, over 30 years ago. Um, It was devised as a simple, low-cost way to communicate between ICs in a television set. And of course, back then, Philips was big in television sets. So it was a very timely development. Over those 30 years, the specification has evolved. There's probably five or six different specifications or versions of the specifications. It started out as a 100 kilohertz standard mode, and that is what the Arduino wire library defaults to. Um, From there, it went to 400 kilohertz to increase the bandwidth up to 100 uh, I'm sorry one megahertz which is called fast mode plus also included in the uh, specification is a 3.4 megahertz high-speed mode and that was really really designed for smartphone sort of applications moving a lot of information to an LCD display over a relatively short period of time And uh, there's also a 5 megahertz ultra fast mode, which is unidirectional. And that is very, very um, uh, direct for um, gaming applications. Uh, You know, Philips licensed the I2C specification, uh, a lot of the hardware things, for many years. And that caused um, many, many variations. So uh, there is uh, something that is um, almost identical, uh, and uh, you can see that in the Arduino, the um, two-wire interface. The reason they called it a two-wire interface is to try and skirt some of the legal situations. But there are a large number of different devices that um, are pretty much exactly the same as I2C, and that's SMBUS. You'll see PM bus for power management bus, IPMI, and ATCA, which is in the telecom world. And actually, even HDMI uses I2C to set up the communications between the different devices. Yeah, is that, was that what they consider the HDCP protocol?
0: Is that part of I2, I2C?
1: Yes. See, I never knew that. that was, I learned that. That's interesting. so where is the i-squared c bus used i mean really everywhere um it's pretty well hidden but um you know it is uh, it is a very uh widely uh used protocol in cell phones all of the sensors the accelerometers the gyroscopes temperature sensors um, they almost exclusively use the i-squared c the other place where uh, the other ICs that you see that uh, um, use a lot of I squared C is EEPROMs, um, and the reason for that is, is to keep the uh, the pin countdown. And these EEPROMs are used for initialization and configuration um, uh, data storage. Um, so it's uh, that you don't need to access it all the time. You only really need it at power on. And these EEPROMs are used in the DDR4, DDR3 memory DIMMs, um, and that stores the, uh, what, uh, what the configuration of the DIM is, uh, what the speed is, so on. Another place that uh, I2C is used a lot is in digital potentiometers, and that's for uh, remote adjustment of uh, analog circuits. And the other place that you'll see I2C a lot is in LED drivers. So even though it is uh, hidden, there is a large, large number of devices being used. Now what we're gonna talk about today is first of all, um, I'm going to be talking mainly about the hardware. Um, And what I'd really like to talk about is some of the infrastructure of an I-squared-C bus system, and what I mean by infrastructure is um, not necessarily the sensors, the gyroscopes, all of those sort of things, but really the, uh, the things that you put together to make a system work, an I-squared-C system work. So the first thing, the first um, acronym that you'll see is GPIO, for General Purpose Input-Output, And this is particularly good when you um, run out of I.O. pins. And uh, the advantage there is, is you have two wires, two I squared C wires that go into the chip and eight or 16 uh, inputs or outputs coming out. So this allows you to put the, uh, the IC where you really need the inputs or outputs and not route a whole bunch of wires. And this is particularly good for enunciators for uh, such as switches and LEDs. So somewhat uh, similar to what Mike is doing in his switcher. And then there's various output configurations to drive custom loads. Another thing that um, uh, is a major part of the infrastructure is something called a mux or a switch. And what that does is takes one I2C bus and multiplexes, that bus onto two, four, or eight different I squared C bus. and what that means is, is that you have, uh, if you have a, a, an address conflict, if you have a, a GPIO, for example, that has the same address as another GPIO, you can use the mux in between the master and isolate those bus segments. So the mux, as I say, is a one downstream bus. You have one upstream bus, which is the master, and a MUX has one downstream bus. A switch will allow you to connect any or all of the downstream buses to the master. So how does the master determine which one it wants to talk to? Um, we'll get into that a little bit further, but okay. uh, basically there's a an address, uh, a different address for the MUX, and it's a simple register write, which uh, sets the, the downstream um, buses to connect. Oh, okay. Um, the other piece that a lot of times is uh, is useful is a bus controller. Um, almost all of the microcontrollers nowadays have parallel have a uh, an i squared c peripheral, but for one reason or another, you may or may not want to use that i squared c peripheral. So the bus controller is a parallel interface to a CPU or some other micro um, as an input, and the output then is multiple streams of I2C, a very easy interface. And the software is relatively easy, or at least much easier than trying to program some of the more complex um, micro peripherals. And then lastly, bus buffers. Uh, The buffer uh, allows you to drive long lines or heavy capacitive loads. Um, If you remember, the i 2 C-Bus is uh, open collector. It's very analog intensive. So being able to amplify the signal helps in a lot of cases. Another place where a bus buffer is real useful is in level shifting, um, especially when you have two different systems at two different power supplies. Um, the, the buffer then allows um, different I squared C voltage level uh, on both the input side and the output side. So I guess before I get too far we should go into some of the I squared C terminology. Um, the master is the device that really controls the bus. It's typically um, the Arduino Atmel Micro or something similar. And as a general rule, it's the only device that supplies the clock signal. The slave is typically a peripheral device. And typically it reads the I squared C address and the register address. And then typically writes sensor data back to the master So one of the nice things about the I2C is is it is a bi-directional bus. Um, It allows both reads and writes, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, The I2C address is a hardwired address that each slave um, reacts to. It's limited to 127 different uh, devices, and there are some reserved addresses. One of the problems is that, number one, there is only 127 um, di- different addresses and in a large system that may be kind of limiting. The other thing is that there is a uh, static enumeration, so typically you need to hardwire each slave to a specific address rather than um, automatically assigning. Now there is um some relief to this, and that is uh, a 10- bit address mode. But again, a lot of times that isn't really implemented. Um, so you have to beware there. And again with some hardware uh, workarounds, it is pretty easy to get around this limitation of 127 or an 8- bit um, addressing mode. The other thing is is that the outputs, or the bus itself is uh, based on open drain outputs, which means that there's an active pull down to ground and you need a pull up resistor to VCC. This is very, uh, the can cause a lot of analog problems because uh, it depends a lot on the capacitive loading of the bus, the speed that you're running at to optimize the pull up resistor. The advantage, however, is that any device on the bus can pull the the bus low. So consequently, you end up with a wired OR configuration. And in the sort of best case or worst case, uh, two slaves can have the same uh, same address and um, be connected to the bus at the same time. The um, slave that has the most zeros in the output is the one that will be read by the master. So there there are a lot of advantages to this um, sort of funny analog bus. And the last thing is uh, an acknowledge or a not acknowledge every packet. There is a handshake every eight bits of data that sends, uh, that goes back to the to the master and uh, what that allows is that uh, the master knows that the message it has sent out has been accepted. Um, In SPI, for example, a lot of times the master can send out data and uh, the um, uh, message may not be received by anyone, and there's really no way for the master to know that. So what I'd like to do is to go through some tips and tricks, some ways of um, helping debug uh, some of the problems that you usually run into in an I squared C system. Really the first one that is probably the number one um, uh, issue, uh, the one that um, I fall into, I think everyone falls into, is for getting pull-up resistors. Without the pull-up, uh, because the outputs are, uh, are open drain, you absolutely need pull-up resistors to make the high level. And just as a rule of thumb, um, at a, the standard mode, or 100 kilohertz, you know, probably a 10 kilo, kilo, uh, 10 kilo ohm pull-up resistor on both the clock and the data line is good enough. It can be a little bit lower, but that's okay. At 400 kilohertz, a standard mode, a 5 kilo kilo ohm pull-up is okay, and in the fast mode plus, a 1K typical pull-up is probably called for. Another thing to watch out for, besides forgetting them, is having too many pull-up resistors connected on the i squared c you can't have a pull up for each and every slave. Uh, there's only a three milliamp pull down uh, capability of the I2C devices on in the standard mode and the fast mode. So that means if the resistors are, get to be too low, um, you won't be able to make a low level. The other uh, thing that uh, people sometimes run into is being sure that the pull-ups are connected to the correct voltage. Um, the I2C inputs and outputs are very flexible and robust, but um, you know, the, uh, the, there is uh, five volt buses and 3.3 volt buses, and if the pull-ups are connected to the wrong voltage, um, you won't be able to um, meet the high level. There are a lot of ways of getting around this voltage level translation and it's really a topic un- unto itself. It's, uh, it's a very analog intensive topic. Um, so when you're doing debugging, I guess the, uh, the thing is, is don't get too fancy right off the bat. Double check that the um, clock and data are correctly wired. In other words, I always switch clock and data and then sort of scratch my head what's going on, and um, eventually I get back around to uh, rechecking my work and seeing that, uh, that uh, I have those two lines switched. Very easy to do, and uh, don't be ashamed of it, double check it every time. So that cures a large number of um, problems, non-functioning squared c system problems. Um, another thing to take a look at is the address. So there's a couple of things. Um, each individual slave has a hardwired address and as you can see in the timing diagram or a waveform below, the, after the master sends out a start condition and an address byte, the slave must turn around and acknowledge that address. If the slave doesn't acknowledge the address, the entire transmission is aborted. So consequently, uh, if you're looking at the i squared c bus with a scope, this is the thing that you'll see. And you'll know that the, um, uh, the system is not functioning because the slave has not acknowledged the address that the master has sent out. Now one of the reasons for that Maybe simply a terminology problem. Um, if you look at the address byte, um, there is typically four bits that are hardwired into the system. And in this particular case, it's the four high order bits, zero, one, zero, zero, or four. And the lower three bytes are hardwired on uh, through the uh, slave pins, which um, and I guess I should have put X's in instead of the zero, so that's B3, B2, B1, um, which allows you to put eight of, of the same peripheral on the bus by simply varying the hardwired I squared C address. So in this particular case, the address that we show here is a 4-0 in 8-bit format. There is another format that is uh, a lot of uh, development tool software uses. It's called 7-bit format, which ignores the read-write bit on the far right-hand side and shifts everything one bit to the right. So in that configuration or in that terminology, this I squared C address is twenty, and an eight-bit format. It's a forty. So be careful about the um, the terminology being used, because this naming convention always causes problems. So as we were talking before, the um, uh, real quick, quickly, the, um, a very simple device um, would simply, uh, as shown in the first uh, bullet, would simply send out a start and a slave address and a read or a write. In this particular case, um, and then the, uh, the, the next byte to send out would be register data. And all of these are acknowledged by the slave. So, Mike, in answer to your question, the muxes and switches would send out the, uh, or the master would send out the uh, address to the uh, uh, mux with a write, and then the register data, which is the actual, um, depending on what the, how the implementation is. Uh, the actual data to turn on the individual downstream channels gotcha. Okay,
0: gotcha. Okay, so before we go too so far, before, Um I guess the other question I had is about the addressing. I have some chips that are Have like five address pins. Some of them have three is the reason just to keep the pin count lower Is that why they yes, okay? Because the, I know I know one of the chips that I'm using on this board for example one of them I think yours does five or six pin addressing and the other one does three-pin addressing. So
1: I wasn't quite sure. Um, a lot depends on the usage case. The um, uh, LED drivers, you would imagine that there would be uh, a large number of them on the bus. Right. Uh, because you just normally, or uh, in in many cases, would drive a lot of LEDs. Consequently, the number of uh, bits that you have would um, uh, allow you to have m- many more Drivers on the same bus, and then um, others, so GPIO or temperature sensors. Normally, you wouldn't expect to see that many on the bus. So the, uh, eight is a uh, gracious plenty.
0: Yeah, I, I guess the thing that's that's probably confusing me is because the 23017, which isn't isn't your chip, is the one thing that does three, and it it takes it's a general GPIO, um, and. Uh in my case, I have sixteen buttons sometimes on board, though so I really quickly can run out of those. you know it doesn't take um very long to fill up you know the seven chips or whatever so I was just more curious what the else the thought behind it was was a pin count reduction or or what it was
1: yeah it's trade off on uh, usage model and pa- available packages gotcha okay. So going uh, going back to the uh, complex device, the second bullet, um, the protocol is that when you write, and this is a, this is a write only, uh, you, when you write to a complex device, um, you write the uh, start, you write the slave address you write a pointer address and then you write register data. So this is, um, for example, in a GPIO um, or an LED uh, driver would probably be a better example. There are a number of different registers, one for brightness, one for um, uh, red, one for green, one for blue, Um, and it would be impossible to do with a single 8-bit register so there is a, a a pointer register that then indirectly addresses the uh, the rest of the data registers
0: yeah i know that your tip that i'm using has multiple registers in it
1: um because i i have the one that does the pwm exactly uh, it, uh, I think it takes like um, 20, a setup of 20 registers to actually get a, the first display. Um, now, going to the read, uh, what we have is uh, a simple device. And again, this is very, very straightforward. Uh, one sets the um, start, the slave address and then the read bit uh, embedded in the slave address, then it reads the register data and stops. So
0: how does it deal with collisions? Is there any possibility for collision or because the master is controlling it all there's no possibility for collision?
1: There really is no possibility for collision since the master um, controls the clock. And uh, again, as I say, if two slaves are at the same I2C address, uh, the one that sends out a zero is uh, the data that the master reads. So it may be incorrect data, but there is no Real collision. Now there is the possibility to do multi masters, but um, that is a, a a very odd case. Um, it's very um, uh, the scenario doesn't doesn't occur very often. Let's put it that way. So if something would happen that the slave would die. It would basically know that
0: because it would not get the act for the slave address. Correct. Exactly. Okay. And is there like a certain timeout period that awaits depending on the speed of the protocol, or
1: the original I squared C spec um, will run at zero hertz. Uh, the SM Bus um, enhancement to the spec uh, will actually time out if after thirty-five milliseconds. Okay. Most masters will, uh, if there is no activity. Uh, if the master driver is well written, we'll uh, look for activity and uh, we'll do something.'ll we'll, we'll do a timeout. Okay. Um, so then real quickly, going back to the uh, complex device, um, this is, uh, is uh, the uh, read is is somewhat difficult because the master, must send uh, send must write a uh, address a slave address. Must write a register address, but then turn around and read the data that the slave sends it. So we won't go into that. We won't go into that protocol uh, very uh, very much. But there is something called a restart that. Um, uh, allows one to do that relatively easily, it just makes the waveform a little bit difficult. So, the data the, the slave
0: sends back, is it always like one one bit in length, or is it, can it be more than one bit in length? Or one byte in length? So it's, it's always one byte. Always one byte, okay.
1: Alright. All right. Because the acknowledge, uh, each byte is acknowledged. Gotcha. Okay. So, there is uh, the way to um, send more information is to um, uh, not, necessar- uh, not stop after. Well, the acknowledge um, when uh, the master is reading means that it, uh, it has read the, the data and is ready for more data. Once it's ready, once it's read enough data, then it will not acknowledge back to the slave. Gotcha. And that terminates. That terminates the the read operation.
0: Okay.
1: So I'm uh, taking way too much time here. Um, the uh, some advanced topics that uh, that we were talking about. This is the multiplexer that we were talking about before on the left-hand side an Arduino as a master and on the right-hand side four temperature sensors all with the same address so uh, 90 hex. Normally that would not be a very good or it would be impossible to put all of those four temperature sensors on the same bus and get four different readings. There's just no way to uh, to access them, so the one way to do that is using a mux, sending uh, and the address of the mux is uh, e zero, so it's uh, it's different from the other downstream devices at ninety. So the master would send out and uh, the mux address, send a data byte to turn on one of the downstream buses and then access the temperature sensor on that particular bus. The master after getting that data, the master would then turn on the second bus and read that data, turn on the third bus and read that data.
0: So I see. So basically that it's basically extending the bus down one of four options.
1: Exactly. Okay. The other piece, uh, or another um, advanced topic, which is very um, um, interesting but um, sort of difficult to explain is the uh, bus buffer, I squared C bus buffer. So if there are too many slaves on the bus or you're working with long lines, that means that uh, you have an increased amount of capacitance on the bus. And remember, we have pull-up resistors. We don't have active drive driving that bus capacitance. So the pull-up resistors and the bus capacitance determine the rise time. What can happen is that the rise time gets so long that it won't meet specification. Consequently, you need the bus a bus buffer, an amplifier, to divide the bus into segments and isolate the capacitance on each segment.
0: So what's the... The distance you think is the max distance for a, something without a bus buffer before we start having problems? It
1: it, it depends on uh, what what sort of wire you're using, how fast you're running. That's why I say it's a, it's an analog problem. It really is depends on so many variables that uh, you need to do the calculation for each and every one. Um, you know. I do a lot of uh, funky things in the lab, and I usually don't have a problem with wires that are, um, you know, two feet long. Okay. I start running problems at, uh, at like three feet. Okay, so one meter is probably a, a, a good lab number, but uh, for production, it's probably less than a foot. Okay. The, f- the interesting thing about bus buffers is, remember the uh, I squared C bus is bidirectional and there is no direction pin. So um, it is a very challenging design to make a functioning bus buffer uh, at the I squared C higher speed modes uh, work correctly. The other thing that a bus buffer is uh, is good for is um, they normally can allow or uh, permit different voltage uh, power supply voltages on the, if you will, input and output side or the A side and the B side. And uh, this is good if you are running a, a five volt master and three point three volt slaves, for example. Uh, nowadays the. Uh, master sides, the CPU sides, are going down uh, down to below one volt. And a lot of the uh, slaves still run at 3.3 volts. So uh, voltage level translation is kind of important. And the last thing that it's, it's good for, a bus buffer is good for, is to uh, protect your I squared C master when the bus goes to an uncontrolled outside source. So, uh, for example, HDMI implements a buffer uh, because there is um, uh, the, the great unknown is out there, and you connect an HDMI cable to your television set, you have no idea what it's going to plug into. So that protects your expensive television set. that's really all i have um i thought i, I hope i've given you a, an overview of i squared c and um some of the problems that you can run into and maybe a couple of um solutions that uh, might help you debug your system
0: yeah that was actually very i mean that was i learned a lot from that so that was great I never even thought about a switch. I've often wondered how would I go more I mean, I know I can do seven with what I'm doing here, I can do up to seven uh boards in particular. I always wonder what I would do if I needed to go beyond that. So that answers the yep. question. And what's the biggest mucks? I mean, you said it was eight. Eight, yes. Okay. Yeah, that's more than enough that's what I'm trying to do. I just wonder if ever I wanted to go to like that eighth board, you know, on this controller, what would I do at that point? So I need to start planning for that ultimately, I guess.
1: Yep. That's very, very
0: interesting. I really appreciate your time and the effort you put in to put it together for us, too. So, um, NXP, you said, was a former Philips company, or was formerly Philips?
1: Yeah, Philips Semiconductor uh, spun out its semiconductor operations um, approximately six years ago.
0: Okay. So you make things other than I squared C?
1: Oh, absolutely. We have a huge portfolio of... Logic devices, transistors, um, micros. Um, the uh, I've only worked here now for two years, and I've got I know about uh, a hundredth of the portfolio.
0: Right. So, but your specialty is in I two C, exactly. Okay. Yeah, I never knew that 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 was NXP was spun off from Phelps. I didn't know that. So, that's interesting. I, when you first contacted me, I thought maybe that was your specialty. Of the company was just I two C stuff yeah okay i really appreciate it. Uh, you joining us you want to hang around or you need to go
1: i really need to get going now
0: all right i appreciate it all right well thank you very much um and maybe we'll have you back in sometime in the future too we have we have more sounds, questions
1: <laughs> sounds great thanks for having me all right thanks a lot all right see ya Bye-bye. bye bye bye
0: all right. Special thanks to John. That was very, very interesting. So, um, Actually, uh, and Bob, if you are listening, I see you just got in. Uh, you can call in if you want for the second part of the show. Um, sorry, I just now saw that. Um, so the second part of the show, I mentioned uh, two weeks ago that we were going to do um, a rotary encoder and a stepper motor. So... Because um, that John was willing to do spend his time with us, I decided just to do the stepper motor this week. And I'm going to show you what we're going to do next week uh, with a stepper motor because the stepper motor is going to take a little bit to explain. Um, and I wanted to walk through a couple different projects or different sketches to kind of show um, how that worked. So what I want to do first of all, let's show you what a stepper or uh, encoder is. So encoder, this is this round thing right here. And I don't know if you be able to hear it. When I turn it, it clicks. You can kind of hear it maybe. So, but so the thing is with a with a step or with a rotor encoder is it just keeps turning, never stops. So if you're thinking potentiometer, a potentiometer actually um, has a beginning and an end. So you can only go so far left, and you can only go so far right. And it works off of resistance. So when you're typically when you're full left, you are oh let me get Bob here real quick. You there, Bob?
2: Oh, hold on. How are you there? I'm here. There you go. I'm very late. That's okay. I'm very sorry. That's okay. (laughs) So, um, say
0: hi, Bob. (laughs) Hello. Um, okay, so... What I was talking about there was uh, the potentiometer is typically, a, it it starts and stops at a location. So you go full left, and then you're going to stop. If you go full right, you're going to stop. And normally if you go full left, potentiometer is at its lowest value or least resistance. And when you go full right, it's at its highest resistance. Uh, but with a rotary encoder, it just turns forever. There's nothing to stop it. So it's, and it's not based off of resistance. Because if it was, when you went the whole way around, it would go back and start over again. So the way a stepper works is, and most of them have two pins and a common, and as you turn it, they change combinations of what's high and what's low in a particular order. And because you know the order, you can tell which direction it's spinning. So what I've done is I've created, the, first of all, a sketch uh, in the Arduino, and I'm going to turn the stepper motor, or the, I'll keep calling it stepper, the uh, rotary encoder, and every time it, it rotates, you're going to see the pins change. then i'm going to show you a sketch i'm going to show you two sketches one of them that will will basically work half the half time and then we're going to go in and look at both pins so we're going to do one pin at a time so uh, the first thing i want to do is get over here to the arduino code and let's see i'm actually going to bring this up on the screen so you have the rotary encoder here and you have on the left hand side of here let me do this let me change my screen resolution should this before i get started so you can actually see this all right so what you see right here is these zeros going uh up and down And right now both these pins are low. And I'll show you what the pins are in the the sketch. Because there's really only two pins being used on the Arduino. But as I rotate it once to the right. You see now it's zero and one. So basically the second pin is high. I rotate it one more time. And now both pins are high. And I rotate it one more time. And now the first pin is high. The second one is low. And I rotate it one more time. And they both go low. And if I keep going you're going to see it goes to one. And then to one one, and to one zero, and then to zero zero, and to zero one. So, and if I go backwards, it does the exact opposite order. So, because it's predictable on what it's going to give you, we can write a program to um, figure out which direction it's spinning. So, let's do this first. I'm going to stop this. I'm going to show you this source code. So, this is basically the watch encoder. And it's very short, you notice there's no, I didn't already put any comments in here because I want to show you how short this stuff is. So here we are defining our two pins. So I have defined pin A of the encoder to be two and the pin B to be pin three. And the third pin on the encoder just goes to ground. And there, I do that because I put these in input mode with pull-ups on them. So they should be ones if, there's not, if I'm not going to ground. Uh, I'm starting up the serial port, and then you see I'm looping, and every one-fifth of a second, I'm outputting the status of the pins, encoder A A, and pin A and pin B. So, um, what what we were watching was me showing you what these two pins are. So, if we look at this, let me go back over to the actual unit here, and you see we have three wires. We have ground, which is the center pin right here underground and then we have uh, encode pin A and encode pin B. A is pin number two and B is pin number three. So, very simple three wire interface to get to read the encoder. Now since we know what the encoder is doing let me go and bring up a different sketch and load it here. And I'm going to show you how we can determine what direction it's going. Looking at the sketch off my screen, whenever I did this adjustment, there it is. All right, let me load it. All right, it's been uploaded. Uh, hang on a second i got the wrong one let me open this back up again okay it's uploaded let me do this let me go back in and to the serial monitor and we're going to go back over to this view and you see up here on the right is the encoder and what you'll see on the screen is a negative one and you see I'm turning to the right one step at a time okay there zero and then another step another step another step another step so there we go to one so you're seeing it's taking me four steps to go up one and i'm going to show you why that is and then i'm going to show you how you get around this so every time i click four times it goes up one just like that So, and going the other direction, if I go back four times, it goes down one. If I go back four more times, it goes down one. You can hear me spinning and clicking it. So, it, it does not, it's not very accurate at this at this rate. And what I'm going to do is, going you know, show you the code that we're running right now. And then I'm going to show you the code to, that you get around that with. So, let's first of all look at the, basically the same code as before. You see I have the pins defined as two and three. And then I have a couple additional variables because so I have to need to keep track of where I'm at in the, in the number scheme and what the last thing was that I read. So you see I'm reading uh, uh, input pull up pin A and B like before, same serial, starting it up. I read pin A, and if I say that uh, encoder pin A last, which means last time I saw it was equal to low, but now it's high, then I need to look and see what pin B is And based on what pin B is determines what direction I'm spinning the knob. So the problem with this is that pin A only goes high from low to high um, once every four clicks. So it's only going to check this once every four clicks. So I also want to show you why this is. So let me go over here and I'm going to show you this is the encoder that I'm actually using, the Born encoder. And if you look right here, let me zoom in a little bit on this. Come back down. So if you look right here, you can see that we have our A and B channels. And see, channel A is on top, channel B is on the bottom. So as you're rotating it clockwise, it goes, when A goes high, if you look at B and it's low, then you're going clockwise. And here goes A high again, and it checks, and it's low, so you're going clockwise. Where if you look at A going high, so you're going counterclockwise, you're going to notice that it goes high when B is high, going counterclockwise. So by comparing the two states of these, you can determine which direction you're turning. So if we go back over and we look at the actual source code, and let me... Uh make this a little bit bigger so we can see it. You can um let's see, let's get back over to this view. You can see that we're only comparing pin A. When it transitions from low to high so what we need to do is we need to be look at every transition of both a and b so what i'm going to do is i'm going to open up the other one which i have here which is the second program that i wrote and again uh very simple at the top you're going to see everything's still the same uh but you see i've added this encoder pin b last so i can keep track of that uh doing our input pull-ups right here let me bring this up a little bit bigger all right so we come down here and we compare the encoder pin a current state to the last state and if it's different which means it's transitioned we then say okay well is it high And if it is high now, since we know it's different, it's changed. If it's high now and encoder pin B is low, we know that we are going um, counterclockwise. Where if it's low now, because it just changed, but, uh, and yeah, and then B is high, we're still going counterclockwise. So we know these two conditions mean we're going counterclockwise. If it's not equal to either one of these conditions, then we know we're going clockwise. Now, if encoder pin A didn't change, it's possible that encoder pin B did change. So we're going to go over here and we're going to look. And if can, encoder pin B has changed, then we do the same comparison. Is it has it just changed to high and what is pin A, which is it low? Or is it just changed to low and encoder pin A is high? If that's the case, we are going um, clockwise. And if it's not, then we're going counterclockwise. So let me upload this sketch. And we're going to look at the serial monitor and you're gonna watch me turn it and every click that you hear you will see it goes up just like that and it goes down just as easy so it works both both directions uh, very quickly much more accurate than what it was before so you hear every click that it goes it goes up or down. So that's a rotary encoder. And now I'm going to put a link to the same website the, of the encoder I'm using. There's many different encoders out there. I have some that have lights in them. I have some that you, that have switches in them. So when you push on them, they turn a switch on. This is a, the one I have here is a very basic three pin encoder, and it just has a common pin and it has uh, an A and a B pin. So if you come down here and look at the diagram, uh, we get past all their stuff here somewhere i don't see where it gives me the actual pins but basically there's three pins and it's uh there it is a c and b so c b in common and then channel a and channel b so that is what i'm reading this uh in my case channel a goes to pin two and channel b goes to pin number three So it's uh, very simple. After you think about it, it takes, and you know what? It took me a little while to write the code because I had to read through this. I had to go right to left. So if I'm turning it clockwise, I had to say, okay, when A goes high, I know I'm going clockwise if B is low. And I had to walk through the logic in here uh, to to figure it out. And actually, here's a great example. Right here is this little D. It's like an indent. So you can see uh, every time it clicks and you go right or from left to right. And then you can go right to left and you can write the logic around it But I'll have the source code out there and you can see the logic and they all seem all the ones I have seen the work are very Similar to if not exactly the same they just have different features like I said some of them I have are lighted I have a one that's RGB So there's pins for the RGB LED and there's switches on some so um, they're all all very very similar All right, I think that is it for the week um, so let's see. Get back here. Where'd Bob go? Oh, there you are. <laughs> I forget where you are. I moved you to the other Skype.
2: <laughs> I'm still here.
0: Yeah, let me get your volume a little bit higher. So did you get to watch any of the the stuff with John?
2: Uh, no, I didn't. I... I got in, and first thing I did was get into the live chat and uh, ask if you wanted me to join. Yep, sorry. So, I, I, how long were you waiting for? I saw that.
0: I had it kind of hidden on my screen, so.
2: Two minutes, oh, okay. if that, okay. Which, okay. which was fine because I needed time to uh, get the lights set up and uh, get the camera on. Gotcha.
0: So, yeah, actually, um, he did a great job on the I2C stuff, and um, he definitely a good resource. Actually, I... I I'm actually using uh, the control source that I designed tonight, so I'm switching with it. So you see me bouncing around trying to find out where things are because they're not all labeled yet.
2: Ah, okay. But I'm actually
0: using it, so it's functioning good.
2: Okay, so imagine, well, I... It's all uh, I2C-based. That's good. And just, unfortunately, I was running late tonight. Nope, that happens. I had a conflict, so...
0: That Happens, I was going to call you afterwards or send you afterwards to make sure things okay because I know you were been in the process of moving or something recently, so I didn't want to. Well,
2: tonight I was uh, I was at a crime watch meeting and I was committed to that. And you weren't uh, committed to right committed, committed. No, I was not committed, committed. (laughs) Okay, I was committed to go and 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 say something, so yeah, uh, so and it i didn't realize until about four o'clock this afternoon that i had a conflict with the show tonight it just uh the the right side of my brain and my left side were not communicating that's today, okay. unfortunately so
0: i didn't say much tonight either i mean uh, john did most of the work so
2: well i'm it's unfortunate i was late because i had a couple questions for him so oh we can still ask him he, he'll probably
0: watch the show back you can probably ask him right now he will answer you back
2: <laughs> okay well, I was, uh, the, the, your email that uh, you sent earlier, the questions that I wrote down were, uh, uh, how does he handle multiple slaves if they end up with the same address? Oh, he, you know, he, I, he explained that. Oh, he did explain that. Okay, yeah. then I'll be watching the show. Uh, what, how do you handle slow acknowledgments? He explained that one, too. There is no such okay. thing as a slow
0: acknowledgment. If you don't answer okay. in 35 milliseconds, your answer isn't coming back. It okay. You, it you aren't there.
2: All right. Well, that's good. All right. So... Uh, I kind of asked
0: that same question.
2: So. You asked the same question. Um, and then I had a... I had a, I wondered, would there ever be a time that you would have multiple masters? And would you ever want to do that? I mean... He, it... he said yes, but he said it was complicated. Okay. He didn't, he well, didn't, he, he
0: didn't go into detail about that.
2: Okay. Well, I kind of wondered if it was even possible and in what circumstance would it be useful? Um, and then the, the more than probably the most practical of the questions that I had were what kind of wire lengths can you have between devices?
0: So Uh, I asked, you know, I've
2: never done anything more than a few inches.
0: I've asked that same question. He said that in his lab, he's done like two to three feet and then he starts having problems.
2: Hmm. Okay. So relatively short wire length, but in the kinds of things we'd be doing, uh, it you wouldn't be you wouldn't have feet worth of
0: yeah well of actually distance. the thing that i'm doing with this control surface i'm concerned because i'm running basically one i2c bus which has eight pins in it so it has uh power and a bunch of other things and i'm running it from board to board to board to board to board. so that's kind of why i was asking the question so okay. if i get you know any kind of size to it i could get a good length out of it so i have to consider all that stuff
2: okay well, those were so I'll have to go back and watch the show later because yeah. those were the those were the first questions that I thought well, you of. We talked
0: about um, uh, I, I can't remember what the device is called, um, but it's like a multiplexer, or um, it goes in between I two C buses, so you can put different voltages in there. So I'm going to look at that and see if that's how I would do longer lengths and stuff. That's kind of how he described it: is you know di- different voltages, disparate voltages, and longer runs because of the capacitance. You put these um device in there, it's actually in the thing I sent you, he talks about it in there as well,
2: okay, well, then I will definitely be watching the show, yeah,
0: but he'll I'm sure he'll answer back questions,
2: okay, well, good, so how are things going with you down there? it's uh very busy, but going good, yeah well, busy's always um, good, right, yeah, busy's always good um. I did get a, uh, you know, we've had a couple people email about uh, Rainbow Duinos. Yes. And I got mine in. I think I got it in Thursday last week and didn't open it up until, didn't open the box from Amazon until Sunday. And I have successfully gotten one red LED to blink. That's a start. That's it. (laughs) <laughs> so <laughs> just takes one uh, so I know I've got a working unit. I just don't have it doing anything interesting yet so uh i'm I'm fighting the uh uh the connections right now, so I'm not quite sure what I'm doing wrong, but i'm I'm working on it so yep. but I have
0: it so before I went to California last week, I emailed you and said about um well, I think I talked about this on the last show too about making an arduino Ethernet shield so I started started that you know basically it's a lot bigger it does a lot more than just Ethernet it does uh, all the other connections that I need for this this control surface so I mean rather than like stack a bunch of things on top of it I decided to make it so I'm almost done with that I've been working on it little by little I'm in the layout stage now the actual board so hopefully soon I have something I'm gonna send it to you and then have you take a look at it for me and make sure I'm not going crazy with anything
2: okay sounds good well, here is the, uh, uh, here's the net Duino with, a with a RGB on it. So I do have it. Oh, very cool. So now I'm just fighting the fighting to get it to work, to do something at this point, besides blink one red LED.
0: Right. And it just uses regular programming out of the Arduino, right?
2: you know i've gotten conflicting information um i should be able to drive it with uh arduino um but it also looks like i I can upload a sketch directly to it
0: that's what i thought i thought it was an actual arduino chip designed just for Um,
2: us but i don't have that i don't have it working and i don't have it debugged yet gotcha so that's where i'm that's where i'm at now
0: that sounds like fun
2: yeah it's well right now it'll it'll be fun later right now it's a <laughs> headache <laughs> so all
0: right well, I'm glad you could join finally tonight. I was getting a little worried about you
2: well, you know it just makes me mad that i didn't I didn't think about uh you know I got too many calendars that um that are too disconnected right now gotcha, but I got a plan and <laughs> i'm implementing the plan now so
0: okay all right well i think that's all we have for tonight just a, a, a few uh, reminders before we go uh you can watch all of our shows uh at youtube.com slash techzen tv and uh if you're a twitter person uh we are uh at techzen tv and if you're talking about this show let's make it make sure you use the pound sign pound sign let's make it so we have a hashtag let's make it and uh, I am monitoring that. I have a search set up, so I do see anything that you, you tweet. Um, and uh, if you're on uh, Facebook, which just about everybody is, go to facebook.com slash techzenTV and uh, click the button there. It says like. And uh, we will definitely appreciate uh, appreciate that. Um, all of our show notes are at techzenTV, or you can go to let's make letsmakeit.tv as well uh, to see those show notes. And this show is recorded live every Monday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. Um, And we were off last week because it was a U.S. holiday, but we're back this week and we're back next week and next week um, I'm actually going to take what we did tonight with the encoder and I'm going to Connect it to a stepper motor and a DC motor. So we're actually going to be able to turn the motor by turning the encoder So that's next week's project
2: And then hopefully I'll have the rainbow Duino working and we can go through that very cool. That
0: would be great. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, and we'll see you all next Monday at 9 p.m. Good night. Night. For show notes for this show, contacts, and more, go to the techzen.tv website where you can get show notes for all of our shows. We love to hear from our viewers and listeners. We have an email, a Twitter, and a phone number where you can contact us for each show. For details, visit the techzen.tv website and get the show details. You can also make a video and upload it somewhere like YouTube or Vimeo and then just send us a link. You never know, you may see your video in a future show. You can get all of our shows delivered automatically to your favorite device by going to your favorite podcast website like iTunes and subscribing. Each of our shows also has a YouTube channel you can subscribe to to get regular updates. Our shows are also available on most internet radio networks like Stitcher and TuneIn Radio. You can also watch and listen to our shows on Xbox, TiVo, and Roku. You can even find us on your Zoom.